Okay, welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff, and that means, I guess, I'm the chemo guy in any sort of children's cancer team. That is, I'm not the surgeon, I'm not the radiation doctor, but I'm the chemo guy. Anyway, today I'm going to talk about another chemotherapy drug, and today I want to talk about a drug called asparaginase. That's it, asparaginase. And I'm going to talk about what diseases we use asparaginase for, and I'm going to talk about how we give it, and then I'm going to talk about some of the side effects. So asparaginase, it's a funny name. Well, you need to know that there's this chemical in your body, a normal chemical, called asparagine. And asparagine is one of these things we call amino acids. And amino acids all get bundled together to make all the different proteins. Well, asparaginase messes up asparagine. And so when asparaginase messes up asparagine, then asparaginase messes up the production of proteins in a cell. And that explains how it kills leukemia, but it also explains a lot of its side effects. So that's what asparaginase does. Next up, I want to talk about what diseases we use asparaginase for. Well, really, asparaginase is only used in leukemia and lymphoma. I'm really struggling to think of a, an application for asparaginase outside of those conditions. So it's definitely used in acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's one of the most important drugs we use in ALL. It's also used a little bit in acute myeloid leukemia. I wouldn't say every AML protocol these days would have asparaginase in it, but it's certainly been used from time to time. And then it's a very important drug in the treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Some of the non-Hodgkin's lymphomas are treated basically with the same protocol as acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and so it's just as important in those, particularly in the T-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. But asparaginase is also found in the treatment of the other non-Hodgkin's lymphomas in childhood. Probably it's been used in Hodgkin's lymphoma, but it doesn't seem to have much of a role there anymore. But it's not used in the other tumour types. It's not used in the sarcomas or the neuroblastomas or the brain tumours or Wilms tumour or any of those. It's really leukaemia and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now the next thing to know about is that there's a few different types of asparaginase. So different forms of it and different formulations. And they go to the way the drug's made and how long it lasts in your body and, and a few other things. But the, the main first one, I suppose, was the one that was called E. coli asparaginase. You might remember E. coli. E. coli is one of the commonest bacterias in our body. So E. coli asparaginase is related to that bacteria. And that would have been the commonest one and the usual first-line one for many years. The problem with asparaginase is that people get allergies to asparaginase. It's one of the big complications we can get with asparaginase is that people become allergic to it. And it's bad enough to have an allergic reaction to the drug, but if you have an allergic reaction to the drug, sometimes you then destroy the drug or stop it from working properly, and therefore you're not able to kill the leukemia or the lymphoma properly. So allergy is a big problem with asparaginase. And so there's another formulation of asparaginase called Irwinia 
asparaginase. Erwinia, that's E-R-W-I-N-I-A, asparaginase, Erwinia asparaginase. And that's a different form of asparaginase. And oftentimes people that have become allergic to the E. coli asparaginase can swap over to Erwinia asparaginase and not have the same allergic reactions and therefore still have the effect against the leukemia or the lymphoma that we're treating. So E. coli asparaginase and Erwinia asparaginase. So they were the main two forms of asparaginase for many years, but in recent times we've also had a new form called PEG asparaginase. Now PEG, P-E-G, stands for polyethylene glycol. And basically, whenever you put PEG on a drug, it normally converts the drug into something that's much more long-acting. So, for instance, there's a drug called GCSF that we give to stimulate white blood cell production. And, you know, that used to be given by a daily injection, and often it still is a daily injection under the skin. Well, that was a pain, having to have a needle every day. So then the same company produced a PEG GCSF. And that means you give one injection of the drug and then it's long-lasting and it lasts for two or three weeks until the drug wears off. So PEG anything means it's a long-acting form of a drug. And so with PEG asparaginase, we don't have to give the drug as often. And that's important. So for instance, the standard E. coli asparaginase its half-life was, you know, around 25, 30 hours. That means you give the dose and then after 25 or 30 hours, the level was about half as much. And then every 25 or 30 hours, the level would drop by 50%. The Erwinia one had an even shorter half-life. And so it was about 16 hours. Whereas this PEG asparaginase, it's pegylated, it's got this PEG attached to it. Its half-life is said by the company to be between 5.5 and 7 days. So that means you have to give it much less often, and that's a good thing. The other thing is that PEG asparaginase, the, the usual one, it's still an E. coli preparation of asparaginase, but for some reason, some patients who developed allergy to the normal E. coli asparaginase could have the PEG L. asparaginase. So it had a few advantages. Okay, next I want to talk about how do we give asparaginase. So first let's talk about the non-PEG asparaginases. So that's the E. coli asparaginase in particular. So for many years we used to give that one by an intramuscular injection. IM, they would call that, an intramuscular injection. And an intramuscular injection is given straight into one of the muscles, maybe of the buttock or the thigh or the arm. So it's quite a deeper injection into the body than, you know, a standard little subcutaneous one just under the skin. So an intramuscular injection. And that's a bit of a more painful way to give a drug, I've got to say. But that's how we gave it. And for the E. coli one, we used to give it about every three days. And in the treatment of leukemia, you know, we'd give something like nine doses every three days for about nine doses. Now, other groups, particularly the Germans, led the way in giving E. coli asparaginase intravenously. So now we could give it into the patient's vein, and in particular we were usually giving it through a central line and into the patient's vein. 
Usually this was done by a one-hour infusion into the vein. Likewise, that Erwinia asparaginase, that was often the second line one we were using, that's given intramuscularly as well, but it can also be given intravenously. Now, because Erwinia asparaginase has a shorter half-life, then you have to give it more often. So you might need to give it, you know, every two days or something like that in order to ensure that the asparagine is adequately depleted in the leukemia lymphoma cells. See, it's all about making the leukemia cells deficient in asparagine, making them sufficiently deficient and making that deficiency lasts long enough to ensure the killing of the leukemia cells. And then finally, there's the PEG asparaginase, the longer acting form of the drug. And that one can be given by an intramuscular injection too, or it can be given by an intravenous infusion. Again, given into the central line, usually over one or two hours. And because it's a long acting drug, it might only have to be given, say, every two weeks. There's probably schedules where they give it every week or maybe less frequently, but I think about every two weeks is one of the standards for PEG asparaginase. Next, I want to talk about some of the side effects of asparaginase. And first off, I'll talk about side effects that occur during the time of treatment, and then I'll get to the question of any long-term side effects. So asparaginase can have some serious side effects sometimes. So in particular, there's the one I mentioned already of having an allergic reaction to the drug. And an allergic reaction can vary from something fairly simple. For instance, you give the injection into a muscle and then you see some redness and swelling in the injection site. Or it might be a more severe reaction. It might be something where the patient comes out in, you know, hives, urticarial spots around the body, itchy, may develop wheezing, such as in an asthma attack, that sort of wheezing. And it can go on to a full-on allergic reaction, you know, with low blood pressure and what you call anaphylaxis. Just like, I mean, you've heard of people who have severe peanut allergy, for instance, who can have a severe reaction, get low blood pressure, anaphylaxis, say, carry an EpiPen around with them, that sort of thing. Well, you can have a full-on allergic reaction like that to asparaginase. And so typically when we give asparaginase, we keep the patient around in the hospital for a period of observation of an hour or so after the injection or the infusion in case they have some sort of allergic reaction. And if there is an allergic reaction, well, then we have to respond to that. Depending on the severity of the reaction, we may need to give antihistamines, we may need to give steroids, we may need to treat an asthma attack, we might have to give full-on resuscitation measures if it's a really severe one. Now, that's not that common, but it can happen. A lot of patients have asparaginase, they never have a problem with any of this stuff, but it is something we have to be watching out for. The next set of side effects relate to the fact that asparaginase interferes with our ability to make protein. That's exactly how it works to kill the leukemia lymphoma cells. For some reason, the leukemia and lymphoma cells are more sensitive to this process than the normal cells in our body. So hopefully we kill the leukemia cells, but our normal cells recover. Well, while this is all taking place, we have reduced production of a number of the normal proteins that we might be making. So the first group of those to talk about are our blood clotting proteins. 
I've talked about platelets before. You know, platelets are little cells that circulate in our bloodstream and they're important for blood clotting. Well, also in your blood are a bunch of chemicals called clotting factors. And when you need to form a clot to stop bleeding, there's this incredibly complicated reaction between the platelets and the clotting factors, and they all get together and form a clot and stop the bleeding. So you have these things in the bloodstream called clotting factors. And, you know, there's about 13 of them, and they're all listed 1 to 13, and then there's a whole bunch of others by now that have been discovered, and it's all very complicated. And there are haematologists who are just experts on clotting and nothing else. But these clotting factors are proteins and they're in our bloodstream and asparaginase often leads to some impairment in how we make these clotting factors. The other thing to know is that as well as having chemicals that help us to make a clot, we also have chemicals in our bloodstream that stop us making a clot. So there's a fine balance achieved between the chemicals that want to clot all the time and the chemicals that are there to stop us clotting because we don't want to form clots all over the body all the time. We just want to form a blood clot when we need it. Well, the chemicals that are there to stop us forming blood clots, they're also proteins. So when we give asparaginase, we have impaired production of all of these proteins. And depending on the severity of this, and depending on which of these proteins are affected more or less than the others, we can have problems of not forming blood clots properly or of forming too many blood clots or forming blood clots too readily. So, for instance, after asparaginase, we may have a tendency not to form blood clots properly and therefore to have a tendency towards bleeding. And so where we normally would form a nice blood clot in response to a cut or something, we may have impaired blood clotting and therefore a tendency to worse bleeding. Alternatively, if the balance shifts the other way, we may have a tendency towards forming too many blood clots. Uh, blood clots that form like that are called thrombosis. Maybe you've heard of people on aeroplanes who get a clot in their leg, a deep vein thrombosis. Have you heard of that? DVT, well that's an example of a spontaneous blood clot that is harmful to the person. Well, certain patients on asparaginase have a tendency to form clots too much. And so, for instance, they could form a clot around their central line. They could form a clot in one of their veins in their legs or elsewhere in the body spontaneously. The most severe thing would be to have a clot form in the brain and have a stroke. Now that's not common, but it is described. It is one of the risks of asparaginase therapy. So when we're giving asparaginase therapy, we're all very aware of the fact that these derangements in blood clotting can occur and we have to watch out for them. There have been times when people have monitored certain blood clotting factors in the bloodstream. You know, you can measure particularly there's a protein called fibrinogen and then there's the blood clotting times. There's all these tests of blood clotting that you can measure. It's never been clear to me how useful all of these tests were in predicting things. And so not every unit would routinely be checking these blood clotting tests because they're just more tests to do and sometimes they're not that informative. So different units will have a different approach to how to monitor those sorts of things or they might not monitor them at all. 
another protein that often goes low in the bloodstream is something called albumin. Albumin, A-L-B-U-M-I-N. Albumin is a normal protein in the bloodstream and it's and it's one of the most important proteins in the bloodstream. What albumin does, it plays a role in keeping fluid in the bloodstream. If you think about your bloodstream, well, it's under pressure, you've got blood pressure, and that pressure is meant to sort of push fluid out of the bloodstream and into our tissues, delivering all sorts of goodies to the cells. But at the same time, you have this albumin in the bloodstream, and it works by osmosis to sort of hold fluid in the bloodstream. So you've got a balance between your blood pressure pushing fluid into your tissues and the albumin holding fluid in the bloodstream. So we're always making albumin and we're regularly measuring it in blood tests on patients. And when we give asparaginase, we often see the albumin level drop. It's very common to see it drop. Now, a normal albumin level is around 42, 46. When we give asparaginase, we regularly see the albumin level dropping and dropping to 30 or into the 20s. We see this all the time or even lower than the 20s. Now, it can drop quite a long way before you actually have a problem from a low albumin. So we don't routinely go giving albumin infusions just because the albumin level has dropped a bit. But you can give an albumin infusion. You can get albumin. We get it from the blood bank and drip it in over a few hours through the central line to top up the albumin levels if we need to. Now, if the albumin level drops very low, then you have a problem of fluid seeping out of the bloodstream and into the tissues. So patients can develop swollen ankles. They can lose fluid into the abdomen. That's called ascites. You can have quite significant leakage of fluids into the tissues and this can become a real problem. So in certain situations, if that's occurring, then indeed we do give an infusion of albumin to the patient. Another problem that can occur with asparaginase is uh, a form of diabetes can develop. Again, because of impaired protein production, we can end up with a state of diabetes. Now, it's normally a temporary situation, but it can require insulin for a period of time, and occasional patients could go on to have permanent diabetes. That's not common. So the patients with ALL and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma are on asparaginase. They're normally also on steroids. Often at the same time, they're on prednisone or dexamethasone. And prednisone and dexamethasone can also lead to a temporary diabetic state. So the addition of asparaginase to that can make it all that much worse. So we do have patients who have to be treated with insulin as though they're diabetic for a period of time. And, and usually when we stop the steroids and the asparaginase and a period of time goes by, we find that that diabetic state resolves. That's not always the case, but it would happen most of the time. Next problem that we see with asparaginase is something called pancreatitis. So the pancreas is an organ in the abdomen. Uh, it's sort of behind the stomach, up the top of the abdomen, the pancreas. The pancreas's normal role in life is to make enzymes, and those enzymes are squeezed out of the pancreas and into our intestines, and they help to digest food. They help to digest proteins and to digest fats. The other thing that the pancreas normally does is produce 
insulin and insulin to control our blood sugar levels. So I already talked about that diabetic state that can occur. Anyway, there's a condition called pancreatitis that can occur. You know, people get pancreatitis for other reasons. You can get it from gallstones. People with really severe alcoholism, they can get alcoholic pancreatitis. There's a whole list of reasons why people can get pancreatitis. But asparaginase can cause pancreatitis, and that can be really very severe at times. And pancreatitis, we normally suspect if the patient's complaining of a lot of pain in the abdomen, so a lot of tummy pain, belly pain, that would make us think, could this patient have pancreatitis? And when we're worried, could a patient have pancreatitis, we do a basic blood test. It's called the serum amylase level and the serum lipase level. So amylase and lipase, they're two of those enzymes that the pancreas normally makes for food digestion. But when the pancreas gets inflamed by the asparaginase, when they have pancreatitis, well, we find amylase levels and lipase levels in the bloodstream that are very much elevated. But no, when the patient has abdominal pain and high amylase and high lipase and they've been on asparaginase, well, that all fits with the diagnosis of asparaginase-induced pancreatitis. And pancreatitis can vary in its severity. In more mild cases, it may be we have to withhold the asparaginase for a while. And oftentimes you treat pancreatitis by withholding any food or drink for a period of time. So, so the patient may need to be on a drip or some sort of intravenous nutrition for a period, what we call resting the intestines or gut rest. That's the standard treatment of pancreatitis in most situations, this gut rest, no eating, no drinking, and give the pancreas a break and let it recover. But pancreatitis can be much more severe. It can lead to uh, cysts in the pancreas. It can lead to whole lots of fluid leaking out of the pancreas and into the abdomen. We often end up doing ultrasounds if patients have pancreatitis to get a good look at the pancreas, see what it looks like. But in severe cases, pancreatitis can be a really major problem and it can have the patient sick for weeks and interrupting chemotherapy and on artificial nutrition. Some patients end up with cysts in the pancreas and need some sort of surgical intervention. It can be a real problem. Now, this isn't what usually happens. I'm not saying this happens to everyone, but I'm just telling you what can happen with asparaginase therapy. So they're the main acute side effects of asparaginase therapy. Again, allergic reaction, and that can be mild, but it can be more severe. Impairment of protein synthesis, and that can lead to these blood clotting problems, either a bleeding tendency or a clotting tendency that can be a mild problem, but can be severe, can even include a stroke, though that's very uncommon. We get a reduction in the albumin levels, and that can lead to swelling in the ankles and the face and fluid in the abdomen in severe situations. That diabetic tendency that can occur, pancreatitis that may be mild with a bit of abdominal pain but can be very severe. Now the next thing to talk about is long-term side effects of asparaginase. And I've got to say that in this respect, I would say asparaginase isn't too bad. Uh, most of the side effects of asparaginase are things that we see occurring during treatment. And some of them can be severe, but often... They're not, but some of them can be. But as far as long-term side effects, I don't really think of asparaginase as a bad drug in this respect. I 
don't typically think of it as one that's causing infertility or second malignancies. I suppose some of the things that go wrong in the short term can persist and so patients who've had uh, that form of diabetes with asparaginase, some of them uh, may have diabetes that becomes permanent, though that's pretty rare. Some people who get that diabetic tendency during leukemia, some of them have a bit of a tendency to be more likely to get diabetes in the future anyway, but that would be a case of they have the diabetic tendency, they get over it, and then later in life some of them are more likely to get diabetes all over again. So asparaginase and long-term side effects, not bad really. It, it, unless something terrible happens in the acute phase with asparaginase, I wouldn't normally think of it as a drug that's going to cause a lot of permanent and long-term side effects. Anyway, I think I'll leave it there for today on asparaginase. It's one of the most important drugs in the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It has its side effects. Oftentimes, the treatment with asparaginase is quite uneventful and we don't really see too much going wrong. But we do have to be watching out for a lot of things and some people have a more terrible time of it. But it really is one of the critically important drugs in the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia and certain forms of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now remember, I've got a Facebook page, Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. So uh, leave me suggestions for episodes or things you want me to clarify, complaints, etc. Or you can give me some stars at the iTunes store. But for now, thank you for tuning in to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff and I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.